Okay, so um, <clears throat> today, today we have probably one of the most controversial um, passages in the whole of the New Testament, where we're encouraged to judge one another, where excommunication for certain members of the church in certain situations is encouraged. It really is a cultural can of worms. So, um, big welcome to the guests. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Now, the deal is, is that we're working through a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. The advantage of working through a book is that you have to hit everything that you just hit. <laughs> you can't just choose your best bits. You, you know, I mean, I think if you just preach themes the whole time, the, what, you, what tends to happen without realising, I guess, is that the, the preacher just chooses his favourite bits all the time, which probably makes for a very inspiring and joyful situation, but perhaps over time doesn't produce the necessary maturity and depth that we'd want to produce as we build community over time uh, in terms of understanding the whole counsel of God. So although it is somewhat daunting, to be honest, to be preaching this, it was this morning and it is this evening, um, I, I'm feeling confident that uh, God will help us as we really try and engage and wrestle with this stuff. We'll do Q&A at the end. Um, and, I, and I promise at the start not to be able to answer all of your questions. Um, because there are still, I wouldn't say that my understanding on this is watertight. Um, but I feel like I'm clear enough on it to be able to say some things very clearly. Okay, so just want to be honest up front there. Um, for those of you that haven't been with us last few weeks, just to give you a bit of background on uh, 1 Corinthians. Why is it called that? Because it's the first recorded letter that we have from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, which, a church which he had planted. Now, Corinth now is a few pillars in Greece uh, springing out of the ground. Then it was a city similar to London, big cosmopolitan city, big trade centre, um, famous for uh, philosophical wisdom, but more than that, notorious or infamous for sexual promiscuity, sexual immorality. It was a home to the temple of the goddess Venus. And it had gotten to the point whereby if someone, was, uh, someone in that kind of part of the world was sexually loose, promiscuous, they would, they would call them a Corinthian. So almost, it had gotten to such the point, the reputation of the place, that just to call someone a Corinthian wasn't to say you're from Corinth, it was to say, you know, you're, you're, you're sexually questionable. That's what it was like. So Paul plants a church into this situation, sees a, sees a church planted that knows the grace of God and is, you know, experiences the gospel, but still actually there's a lot of struggle within the church. They're struggling with the things that the city around it are struggling with, which is very often the case. So you'll tend to find that um, the church's battle, uh, the battles that churches face in terms of the things that challenge the work of God in that church are generally the things that the, their surrounding culture faces, because obviously um, you're planting a church right in the middle and right in the midst of um, a city or a setting where there are dark, where there's darkness and sin. So that's what's going on there. Um, and um, so just to give you a little bit of background. So we'll read the, today's uh, passage, which is 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to read chapter 5, just the whole of chapter 5. Now the colours here, just to give you, it's not just because it looks nice. Um, the, what, the reason I've done this is to help you understand the structure of the passage. What you've got here, this first small paragraph, which is... Um, verses 1 to 2, just verses 1 and 2, really sums up the entirety of the rest of the chapter. Okay, So Paul sums it up there, and then he unpacks it. And so, but the way he does it, you could describe it as, if the blue you call A, 
and the green you call B, and the red you call C, the pattern of the, of the passage is A, B, C, C, B, A. Okay? So he introduces it in this little paragraph, and then he picks up the last bit of the little paragraph first, and then the middle bit in the middle, and then the first bit last. Does that make sense? So for example, you can read from the blue straight into the blue, and it flows like a sentence, from the green into the green, from the red into the red. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'll read through the whole passage first of all, and then we'll take it colour by colour. Okay? Yep. All right. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. <clears throat> For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, or drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay? Yeah. I thought there might be a silence at that point. Um, so <laughs> where are we going on this? Um, we'll start. We'll, we'll, we'll go for the blues. Here we go. <sighs> It's actually reported, among, reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'll need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or Christian if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, thanks, Katie. We can. I want to talk about tolerance. This is my first point on this blue section here. Um, the UK kind of celebrates the fact that we're a tolerant society, and people you tend to find often in conversation will, will say things like, "You know, I'm just I'm a tolerant person. Yeah, I'm a tolerant person. I don't like all that um, religious intolerance. I don't like all that the way people are so intolerant. The beauty of the UK, especially London, you'd hear Ken Livingstone say it a lot when he was a uh, mayor, is that there's this tolerance." Now, let me just say this, uh, that, that it's slightly simplistic and naive to simply say you're either intolerant or tolerant. Why? Here's why. Because we all have a line placed differently. The line's in a different place, but we all have a line of things we will and won't tolerate. So even if you're a tolerant person, there are things you won't tolerate. Imagine for a moment you're a parent. Let me ask you this question. How many of you in this room would tolerate a paedophile babysitter for your children? Any hands? Well, you intolerant lot. Doesn't work, does it? 
It doesn't work. You see, what the point I'm making is this, is that no one is completely tolerant. No one is completely intolerant. We tolerate certain things based on our, what we feel is right and what we feel is wrong. So it's important that we're just clear on that when we look at this whole subject of tolerance. Because the Corinthians were tolerating within the church a kind of sexual immorality that even those around them weren't tolerating. Paul is flabbergasted. He's like, you know, it's not even as if you're just kind of copying the world. Man, the world, the world wouldn't even do this. And, and not only this, but you're boasting about it. This, you've got to, this is a key. If you want to understand today's sermon, you've got to understand it is flagrant, deliberate sin with boasting. Okay? It's not someone making a mistake, not someone messing up. It's not someone giving way to temptation and then feeling the grief of that. It's not that. It is sin with boasting. Okay? It's very, very important. Otherwise, you misunderstand the whole passage and everyone in the room who struggles with sin feels like they're going to get kicked out of the church. Okay? So we need to be clear on these things. What is Paul really hitting here? Hypocrisy. That's what he's hitting. Someone who's calling themselves a believer, someone who puts their trust in Jesus, someone who says, I believe in Jesus, he's changed my life, I'm not what I was, I've been cleansed by him and now I'm looking to follow him and at the same time is doing things that Jesus says we shouldn't do and doing so with a sneer on their face and boasting about it. It's hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy is not a religious word. It means one who wears a mask. It's a pretender. In those days, someone who was an actor on stage, they were a hypocrite. It wasn't an insult. It's an actor. Okay? So it's those who act. It's like we pretend to be Christians or you know, they might praise and worship and do all the stuff, but actually they're doing something else. They're about something else. That's what Paul's hitting here. He said it's a terrible situation to be in, someone who would call themselves a believer, but they're acting and living in this way. He's taken a strong stance on it, a very strong stance, as we've read, and we'll look into in details in just a moment. But no stronger than Jesus. If you look at Jesus, full of compassion, full of humility, touching and healing the leper, raising the widow's son. When it comes to the hypocrites, we see a different Jesus. If you know, He's utterly consistent, don't get me wrong, but you see a very different side to Jesus. You hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. I mean, he's really laying into them. Why? Because he hates the pretense. It's just pretense. And he, really, really, he hates these <coughs> religious leaders that were telling people to do one thing but wouldn't do it themselves. Hates it. You put these burdens on people but won't lift a finger yourself. And he really lays into them. And uh, interestingly, isn't it? I think a lot of people, the big problem they have with church is hypocrisy. Am I right? Have you heard that? Maybe you've said that. Maybe that's you. You're thinking, maybe you're here tonight as a guest. But you're thinking, you know, I think I'm really does mean about churches. It's just full of hypocrites. I've heard that so many times. Very close relative of mine, when he was a youngster, um, was poor to the point of being hungry in Ireland. Him and his mum, single mum and siblings, and the church did nothing. They went to the church, the church did nothing. That experience, 50 years on, still shaped my relative in terms of their view of the church and Christianity. It's frightening what hypocrisy does, frightening. I was driving with a work colleague once through London and he told me a story, he was a photographer, he told me a story, he was taking snaps once in London, walking backwards, taking snaps. At the same time, people were piling out of a church, accidentally bumped into someone coming out of the church, turned around to apologise and just got an earful of insults. An earful. Stuck with him. It stuck with him. And for him, that was his problem with, with Christianity. It's frightening. What hypocrisy does, the damage caused by it. God's anger is incredibly aroused by hypocrisy 
And that is what is being challenged here in the situation with the Corinthians. It's sinning with boasting. It's a, it's a life that just really doesn't add up. It's not a Christian struggling, making mistakes, stumbling, getting it wrong, but pushing on. It's not that at all. <laughs> okay, that's the Christian life. It, this is something completely different. It's sinning and boasting about it. And so we, get, we come on to this passage where Paul talks about judging. Now, this is, because this is another one people hate about church, isn't it? I left that church, they were judging me. Maybe they were doing something right. <laughs> I don't know. It's tricky, isn't it? Were they, weren't they? Let's look at it. Let's unpack it. And we're going to look at some of what Jesus says, first of all, about um, judging. Um, to be honest with you, I think I probably confused myself slightly this morning as I preached this. And then some questions was asked by Fox, which really thrown me. So I'm kind of, I'm still, I'm still a little bit disorientated on this, if I'm honest. I just want to be up front. But I think I can say some things that will help and bring some clarity. But there may be something you think, well, that's a little bit. He hasn't quite, quite dotted the I there. All right, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> so this is what Jesus says. I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know, I want to just kind of be up front with you. Uh, Luke 6, so Jesus says, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father's merciful. Judge not, and you won't be judged. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is clear they're judged not, you'll not be judged. But the context is with the outsiders. The context is there, I think you can rightly say, with unbelievers. Because he says there about the Heavenly Father being um, uh, kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's talking about how we relate to the world. Okay, So, so, so not to judge the world in that sense. Now, what, 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 let's just stop there and we'll just look at that for a moment. Because what do Christians believe about the difference between Christians and non-Christians? Maybe here you're not a believer or you're not sure where you're at. Just help you understand what is it that a Christian, that the Bible teaches about the difference between a Christian and non-Christian. On the one hand, there's no difference. In what sense? In this sense. We are all born in exactly the same position, which is corrupt and sinful and away from God and in massive need of mercy. Okay? So a Christian should never have an attitude which is kind of like he's on the higher ground or he's somehow kind of inherently different. That's not the case. We're all born in exactly the same position. We need forgiveness. We need mercy from God. It's not something we can earn. We need grace. Right? That's what we believe. But we also believe when someone becomes a Christian, it's more, much more than simply they've made a decision to join a certain religion. It's much more than they simply come to a conclusion that they will now take on the label Christian. The Bible speaks much more fundamentally about what happens when you become a Christian. The Bible says that God operates on you. God works on you so fundamentally, so radically, that although you still have indwelling sin and are not perfect, I don't know that you can with hand on heart call a Christian a sinner. The Bible calls them saints. Okay? Now... When the Bible refers to sinners, it's talking about those who habitually sin, those who, which is how we are all born in that sense. But when you get saved, the Bible says that God takes out your heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, you're born again. So we're at your core before you wanted to go away from God and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. Now at your core, you want to serve and honor Him. Okay? And so you're fundamentally different now. 
in that sense. And so, but if that has happened to you, then you need to recognize that is pure mercy, that is pure grace. It doesn't make you better than anyone else. That makes sense. It makes you fundamentally different, but not better. You've received mercy. God in his mercy has opened your eyes to the gospel and you've put your trust, you've clung to Jesus, but you know that your whole hope is in him. Therefore, if you as a Christian look to someone who hasn't received that mercy, who hasn't had Jesus revealed to them, and you begin to make judgments about them, and you know, for example, you start saying things about Derek Bird this week, that guy who killed 12 people, injured 25 others, and you start saying things which kind of, kind of the way you're talking, it sounds like you're saying you're, you're somehow different. How on earth could he have done that? And I would say, as a Christian, that is outrageous. As a Christian, you don't, even, you don't know yourself. If you're saying that, you don't know yourself. You think that inherently you're somehow different from Derek Bird. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone who wasn't a Christian said that, because I know for me, before I was a Christian, I would tend to kind of like feel like I was pretty okay. Yeah? And if I was someone who murdered 12 people, I tend to put myself in a different category from them. When I became a Christian, God showed me the extent of my sin and my corruption. Now I no longer do that. I look at Derek Bird and I say to myself, there but by the grace of God go I. It's a very different attitude. So as a believer, you don't look at those who don't know the Lord and judge them. It's outrageous. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. You simply say, God, they need what I've received. They need your mercy. Please, will you touch their life? Please, will you win them to yourself? Okay? Now, it doesn't mean you don't exercise wisdom and discernment and, you know, and discretion. Of course, you know, it doesn't mean you just kind of, you know, throw the whole thing open and just kind of, you know, I don't know, kind of totally entrust your life to anyone because you're not going to be judgmental. It's not like that at all. You can exercise discernment and, you know, but in that sense, you never categorize and say, well, I'm inherently better. We don't do that. It's terrible. Okay? God will judge the outsiders. But we are to judge those on the inside. Now let's look at this Matthew passage, which is, I think it's, it's the parallel, but I think you could argue there are differences. But like I say, I'm, I'm a little bit kind of, I'm kind of on a bit of a tightrope here, so we'll see. Judge not that you may not be judged. With the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But then Jesus goes into detail here, which is very humorous. You're allowed to smile and find it amusing. Jesus is being funny here, okay? Why do, you see this, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? That's kind of funny, all right? How can you say to your brother, this is even funnier, how can you say, you have to educate people in terms of laughing when Jesus says stuff, because people are kind of, well, but not, Jesus said it. No, it's a joke, okay? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Please just imagine that for a moment. Okay, it's funny. Imagine I had this huge log in my eye, and I said, I'd love to help you with that splinter. It's funny. You think, okay? Um, you hypocrite. You actor. You pretender. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then he says, don't give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I'm just trying to help you unpack that for a few moments here. So it seems like the kind of judgment there, it's talking about brothers here. So it seems like the context perhaps could be slightly different. He's talking about those within the community of believers. Now, he's definitely saying judge not, and I can't escape that. But then he goes into what kind of judging maybe that he's talking about. And it's the kind of judging which is kind of, it's kind of like where you are utterly blind to your own, own faults, but very aware of other people's. Don't we do that easily? If you are sitting there thinking, I don't think I do, then one day, if it's God's plan for your life to be married, you will discover that you do. <laughs> you discover you spend most of your time walking around the house with, a, with about 15,000 logs in your eyes, <laughs> offering for, in a very holy manner to remove the speck in your spouse's. 
that's just, just the way it goes. And you just get incredibly humbled year after year. Uh, I'm, I'm down to about, I think by the grace of God, I'm down to about 7,500 logs now. So <laughs> we've made a lot of ground, but there's a long way to go. But it's like that. It really, it's so easy to see. Isn't it so easy someone else's fault? I mean, there have been times where I've literally found myself thinking or saying, I would never do that. And then I've been reminded of a time when I actually did exactly the same thing. It's horrific. And, but we do it so easily. That kind of attitude must not be allowed or welcomed into the church. That is the kind of thing that I think people often leave churches over and say, I just felt judged. I think they're saying that's what happened. Okay? Now, what should we do? Well, Jesus is very clear. He's saying, take yourself first of all. If you're considering that you might want to be able to help a brother or sister out with a sin, before you do that, put yourself under the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Say, Lord, just search my heart. Show me if there's any wicked ways within me. Show me if this is coming out of any arrogance. Just deal with me first. Take as many logs that you can out of your eyes first. As you see yourself, in, in, uh, you know, by the grace of God, you see the, the reality of what you're like in terms of your own attitudes. The idea then is that actually you are still to go and help your brother or sister with that speck. But the way you do it will be completely different. You will go humbly. You will go contritely. You will go gently. Yeah? Because you've seen yourself for how you are. And you, you will tread carefully, and you will honour them, and you'll look to build them up, and it will be helpful rather than harmful. Okay? And so that is, that, is what, that is what we're allowed to do in the church. Now, as Foxy pointed out this morning, what's happening in Corinthians here seems to be a step further from that. But I think what, the way you could put it is this, is that this is someone with a log in their eye, not just a speck, and it's, a, it's someone who um, they speak and boast so much about the log in their eye that other people are thinking, hey, I might get a bit of that log going. Uh, it looks pretty cool. Okay? And it's affecting the whole body of believers. And when you speak to that person about that log in their eye, they refuse to do anything about it. Okay? That's what we're really hitting, which we're going to look at in a moment in Corinthians. I hope that helps. We're doing Q&A at the end. Okay, let's move on to the greens, please, Katie. And you're arrogant. Or you're not rather to mourn. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven, that is yeast, leaven is yeast, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul gets very figurative here. What is he actually saying here? Well, he's saying, first of all, the big problem is the boasting. There's no mourning. Okay? There's no sense of mourning over the sin here. Terrible immorality, and there's no sense of mourning and repentance. Instead, there's this arrogance. And Paul's saying, no, ought you not mourn? And there is a right mourning over sin for a believer. Let me just say that. Um, we don't, you know, some, it's totally true that as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to cleanse us of all sin and to forgive us. Absolutely. And we completely believe that. But in the process of confession, there's, there, there's sometimes an appropriate mourning. I've, I've ex- felt that and experienced that in my own life. You know, sometimes where you, you know when you do those things and you can't believe you've done them? You ever had that? Or you said the thing you can't believe you said, or you didn't do the thing you can't believe you didn't do. You were cowardly, you know, and you thought, I can't believe I didn't do that. And you feel in your heart so pierced. It's not condemnation. Condemnation is the thing that Satan brings, that kind of general sense of you're just a waster. It's not that. You feel pierced. Because suddenly you've seen yourself afresh in terms of your sin, and you mourn before God. You say, God, have mercy on me. It takes you, you go back and you cling to Jesus afresh. And you, afresh you are overwhelmed with the fact that he is your righteousness. And he is your right standing before God, and he is your wisdom, you know? And through that clinging to him again, there's that cleansing that comes. 
But there is a mourning there, which is appropriate, and not to, not to be afraid of that. So Paul's saying this, that should be your response. Instead, you're just kind of boasting. But what he's saying is this. He's saying that it's a bit like yeast, and it needs to be removed. Because the way yeast works is when you're making bread, all you need is a tiny little bit. You put it in there, and you can think, Do you know what? That's not going to make any difference. It causes the whole loaf to rise. Point being, yeast affects the whole loaf. What's Paul saying through that? Undealt with sin in the church, undealt with deliberate, flagrant sin in the church, undealt with unrepentant, boastful sin in the church, will affect the whole church. And the whole church's life and health is threatened as a result of that. It will mark the whole character of the community. It must be removed. Now, if the person who is in that unrepentant, deliberate, flagrant, boastful sin refuses to repent, then the only way to remove that sin is to remove the person. You understand what I'm saying? If that person won't be removed and separated from that sin, but insists on clinging to it while still saying, no, I am a believer, I still name Christ as my saviour, but I will do this and I will boast about it. That person refuses to be separated from that sin. The only way to get that sin out is to get the person out. If you don't, the whole loaf is impacted. The whole church is impacted by that. Okay, we'll look at that in detail when we get on to the, the Reds. And then he goes on to this thing about Christ being our Passover lamb. Don't you, you know, um, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And what's he talking about there? Here's what he's talking about. When Israel were captives in Egypt and God was about to deliver them through Moses, God um, set up this kind of Passover meal. And the idea was this, was that the, really, um, the final plague that God was going to bring on the Egyptians for their stubborn refusal to let the people of God go was that God was going to send a destroyer and the firstborn son in the whole of Egypt was going to be destroyed. But God says to the Israelites, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill a lamb and I want you to use the blood of the lamb and paint it on your doorposts. And when the destroyer comes to Egypt, it's like a destroying angel. Every household that has the blood on the doorposts, that, that destroying angel will pass over and will be, that household will be spared the judgment. And then you are to eat that lamb, and also you're to eat unleavened bread. And the whole thing with the unleavened thing is that because is that you're going to be in a rush, because you're going to be leaving in the morning, you're not going to take time to make it uh, bread with yeast in, you're going to just have it unleavened. That's the whole idea, because you're going to be delivered soon. Salvation is coming, okay? So unleavened bread speaks of God's, God's approaching near salvation. You're about to be delivered. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Okay? So, what, so, what, and, and so Jesus Christ is called the Passover lamb. Why? Here's why. Because as you become a believer, you put your faith in Christ and his blood blood that was shed as the Lamb of God sacrificed on the cross, his blood that was shed, we, we, we come under the shower, if you like, of his blood. We, we, we gladly almost, if you like, wipe his blood on us and say, yeah, I received the blood. Why? Why? So the judgment of God will pass over us. That's the idea, you see. God's judgment doesn't pass over. It's not like some kind of, um, the blood is primarily not for us, it's for God. Okay? So when the people put, their, put the blood on the, on the door, uh, it didn't, they didn't feel anything. They just kind of sat in the house. But God passed over still. So when you put your faith in Christ, it's not about a feeling necessarily or an emotion. You're saying, I put my trust in you, Jesus, and that your blood that was shed for me is enough for my forgiveness. That, the blood of Christ, is enough for God. God will pass over you in terms of his judgment and will save and deliver you instead. Okay? So G- that is Jesus, our Passover lamb. And then what Paul is saying is this. Listen, let's celebrate the festival, not the Jewish festival of Passover, the gospel festival. Okay? Let's celebrate that Christ has died and risen, Christ has won our salvation. Let's celebrate that, not with the old leaven, not, not, in, not in a way that we used to live. 
Okay? So you used to live in sexual immorality. You can't celebrate the gospel in that way. You can't call yourself a believer celebrating Christ and still live like that. Okay? It just doesn't work. You have to celebrate the gospel in a certain way. In what way? With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So transparently, you come out of the dark and into the light. You walk away from the pretense. You walk away from saying one thing and doing another. You walk away from deliberate, unrepentant, boastful, flagrant sin. And instead you come to God as you are, very aware of your sin, very aware you're going to stumble in many ways, very aware of all of that, but saying, you know what, Lord, I do want to follow you. Okay? So it's not that you, let's celebrate, you know, let's celebrate with the unleavened bread of perfectionism. It's not that at all, okay? But it's just a sense of, here I am, Lord, this is it. I'm, I'm not too you know, impressed with it, but I genuinely want to follow. That's how we celebrate, okay? And that humble attitude is how we celebrate Christ. Is that cool? Yeah. All right, we probably need to get on to the big, the big bad blue. No, the big bad red. Okay. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay. This is about discipline, to remove that person. Now I want to answer a question, because I think at this point, I'm sure many people are thinking, surely it's better to keep the person in. Could we dim the lights slightly? Is that okay? Thank you. Just getting those funny circles. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, isn't it better to just keep the person in? I want to answer that in two ways. Number one, is it better for the church to keep that person in? If that person wants to sort things out, absolutely. If that person, though they don't have no idea how they're going to overcome this sin, but they really want to, absolutely. Absolutely. If that person feels an element of just like remorse and um, I just hate this in my life, absolutely. Of course it is. If, however, that person is boasting about it, is stubbornly unrepentant and deliberately continuing to do so, then the Bible teaches that it will not be better for the church to keep that person in. Why? Because it will infect and affect the whole church and the church will lose its very character of holiness and light and will become a dark place. And remember, the whole idea of the church is that we are the light of the world, the city on a hill, and we're to shine out to those outside, aren't we, and show something different? Well, you tolerate unrepentant, boastful, flagrant sin in the church, that light gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and you know what people start saying? Look, they're a bunch of hypocrites, and they're right. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Why? Because they allow hypocrites to just be in the church. So it's not better for the church, is it? But surely it's better for the person. Surely it's better for the person to remain in the church, is it? I question that. Here's why. If someone is in this position of deliberately, unrepentantly, boastfully, fragrantly sinning, you say, why do I keep using those terms? Because I'm guarding with all of my might against anyone sitting in this room thinking, do you know what? I'm in serious sin. And I'm, I'm scared. And I don't know what to do. And I'm scared to talk to someone about it. And I'm guarding with all my might against you thinking that what I'm saying tonight is you need to be removed from the church. Because I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the person who is in boastful, flagrant, unrepentant, deliberate sin. Okay? Because if the church cannot be a community where those who are struggling with sin can remain and be helped, I don't know what the church is. We've lost the plot. Okay? You may have done the worst thing that you think is possible. The most terrible sin. Living under huge... Shame, fear, guilt, you don't know what to do. Please speak to us. There will be multiplied grace given to you. Help, support, comfort, please. Let me, let me 
extend that to you with all of my heart. You must not misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. I'm talking about the person who's doing what kind of sin? I'm repentant, flagrant, boastful, stubborn, deliberate. Right, okay, right, cool. Okay? So, so it's a very specific situation, okay? So is it better to keep that person for them in the church? No. Why? Here's why. By being involved in boastful, flagrant, deliberate, unrepentant, stubborn sin, they are putting themselves in a very vulnerable position. They are removing themselves from the protection of the Lord. They are making themselves extremely vulnerable to satanic attack and satanic damage. They need to feel that they are doing that. To wake them up to repentance. One of the main ways they will feel that they are doing that is by the church putting them outside their protection so that actually the reality of what that person is doing through what they're doing will dawn on them that they might get right with God. If the church keeps them in and acts normal, everything's fine, they are lulling that person into a false sense of security and therefore no longer being a truthful community but being a deceiving community. Does that make sense? You're not serving or helping the person. You're really not. And you are, you are, you are um, shoring them up in their deliberate, flagrant, boastful sin. And I think it's okay. And because they are being accepted and, uh, and kind of like embraced in that sense by the body of Christ, they're assuming that Jesus, Jesus, the head of the body, is responding in exactly the same way to them in their deliberate, flagrant sin. And he isn't. He isn't. He's calling them to repentance. And the church needs to call them to repentance. Okay? So I think I would say, no, it is not better for the church or for the person. So what is this handing over to Satan deal? That's what a lot of you are saying. Come on, get on to that. I want to find out what's going on there. Well, the theologians tend to take two stances on it. One stance is this, that it's simply saying the person really is siding with Satan through what they're doing. Okay, And so the church is really just saying, we're going to agree with what you're doing. This is what you're doing, and so in that sense, we give you over to that. It's a bit like in Romans 1, where it talks about God giving us over to our lusts of our hearts and our corrupt desires, where we've gone for that. God says, I'll give you over to that, and that's a manifestation of God's wrath. Okay? It's what the Bible says. A manifestation of God's wrath is that it gives us over to those sinful lusts. So it's a bit like the church acting on God's behalf, saying, we give you over to that. Okay? The other stronger line, um, I'll give you an example of what I've heard before. It would be a pastor saying this, that um, they sent out a missionary to Bangkok. Um, last thing they'd heard, he'd slept with 14 prostitutes. And uh, was that, that's the deal. That's what he was into. And so the church, corporately, had begun praying that he would be, physically would be attacked or harmed in some way um, so that he might be brought to repentance. Kind of unusual, kind of out of the box, isn't it? <laughs> that's their take on it. So, um, they're the two stances, if you like. Um, the second one, pretty on PC. Um, but that's, that's what they're doing. Now, where, are we on, where, where, where would I say we are on it? I think what I'm comfortable saying is this. Is that that person, through their actions, has made themselves utterly vulnerable. Utterly vulnerable. As a result, the church needs to express to that person that they have made themselves utterly vulnerable. And what that looks like is removing them from the church. I think I'm clear on that. I think the other thing, I think you could take it that far, but I'm not necessarily going to, at this stage, say that, you know, that's what we're going to do. I'm just saying no. What I'm clear on is that, that scripturally, it's removing them. Okay? So that would, be, that would be the extent that I would go to on that. Um, 
I would say that it's not tyrannical, it's not tyranny, it's just being truthful. I've got some little alliterations to help you, okay? It's not, it's not tyranny, it's truth. You're not being horrible, you're saying this is what you're doing, this is what you've chosen, we want to act in, a, in accordance with the truth of what you've chosen, okay? It's not malicious, it's merciful, okay? So you're not being malicious and saying, blah, blah, blah. you're saying, actually, you know what, we really want you to receive mercy and come to repentance, let's do what we need to do, so it'll wake you up so that you will repent and be restored. You're always looking to restore, always. It's not just a sense of, right, you've got to be gone forever. No, you just remove all why, so there'll be repentance, why? So we can restore you, okay? Um, and also say this, it's not, um, it should not be done in a haughty way, but in a holy way. So it's not in a kind of, we're better than you way, okay? But it's in a kind of a fear of God way. We've got to do this to preserve the church and for your sake. So um, I want to just conclude then with we'll do Q&A. The church is not to be like the kind of thing you see on the Vicar of Dibley or Mr. Bean, just kind of harmless, irrelevant, insipid. That is a caricature of the church that must be kind of dismantled and done away with. But neither do we want to adopt an aggressive kind of crusade style um, uh, you know, pattern of the church. How do we decide what the church should be? We, go, we look at Christ crucified. He determines what the church is. Okay, so, so what am I saying? So the church number one is purchased. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Okay? Purchased by him. We are a blood-bought people. As a result, we are his. And we are here primarily for him. And so much of Christianity, I dare to say it, probably in the way I think, is so man-centred, we can get this and really struggle with it, where primarily we should be thinking, how can the church bring glory to God? How can the church properly point to him and make him known? Certainly not by accepting and allowing flagrant, boastful, unrepentant sin and hypocrisy. Surely that's one of the things that's caused the biggest damage to the church down the ages, that hypocrisy has been allowed. So, okay? so, so we've been purchased, we are his, we don't get to call the shots, he does, and we don't get to bring in our own lines of tolerance. If you become a believer, you say, Lord, what are your lines of tolerance? Well, he says it there, it's pretty clear. You know, there's, a, there's lists all through the Bible of things that just aren't right. Drunkenness, greed, Love of money, lust, anger, these things are the heart, which all of us struggle with. It's when we stop struggling with them that I'm worried, you know? I've said that before, haven't I? Some people say, I'm struggling with this sin, so no problem, so am I. <laughs> it's when you stop struggling and I'm worried about you, okay? That's when I'm starting to get concerned, okay? So, so we're purchased. Secondly, we've been purified by the blood of Jesus. We've been purified through his act on the cross. Therefore, as a church, we've got to be pure, right? Not a legalistic purity, but a sense of, I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. Man, I can't live a kind of mixture of a life. It's Jesus or it's not. It's light or it's darkness. Yeah? So, the, the, so the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, Jesus determines what the church is. Purchased, pure, and powerful. Not in a worldly sense of kind of domineering and you know, moving people around like chess pieces. No, no, no. But genuinely, the, there's the power of God in the church, which we're not to be ashamed of, not to be kind of, is an authority in the church, it's a power. So as a church, you know, something like this happens, there's a God-given power for the church to deal with it. And so we deal with it, okay? Because at the cross, we see the power of God unleashed. Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. And as we understand this, we'll become a community that is not judging of the world in any way, and only judging of one another once we've judged ourselves and put ourselves under the spotlight. And if we ever do as a church have to make a judgment over someone and put them out, always done with a view to repent, that they repent and are restored to the church. Why? Because Jesus was crucified so that people would repent and be restored to him. 
Okay? So the gospel helps us understand what the church is about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done. We understand ourselves as we understand him. Amen? Amen. Q&A. Yes, sir. I can't because of the lights. Is it Ollie? Is it Ollie? Okay. Uh, I was just um, in a verse. Uh, Paul actually talks about the Yes. Um, but in this example, Paul, who's like a distant apostle, he doesn't even attend this church. He says he's absent, and he, from afar, pronounces yes. judgment yes. alone. Yes. So I guess the question is, in the absence of apostles, maybe we have apostles, but you know, who pronounces judgment? That's cool. Yeah, very good. It's actually both in this passage. So Paul does say he pronounces judgment, but he, he calls them, he asks them to have a public meeting where they gather together. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm there in spirit. What that quite means, I actually don't know. But he says, I'm there in spirit, but I want you to gather and, and, and actually in that act, hand the guy over to Satan. So he calls the church to publicly do that, but definitely he's calling them with apostolic authority to do that. And so I think that, and what I would say is, is that, is that it's, it's a responsibility for the church to do, but the church haven't been taking the responsibility to do so, so the apostle speaks into it. Is that okay? When's it right to speak out? Uh, when's it right to, for abuse or that kind of thing? I think Jesus calls us the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And so light, obviously, the idea is that it sometimes exposes the darkness and salt, pres- in those days, preserved meat from going off. So we are in the world to have a preserving, uh, exposing effect at times, absolutely. But in the way we do so, we are not... It's not coming from an attitude whereby I'm, for example, let me just imagine, uh, okay, I'm in my workplace and there's uh, someone in authority that is really abusing that position of authority, okay? So I am to find a godly way of speaking up for those who are being abused, okay? Absolutely. But when I do so, I don't do it in such a way that is, I'm almost speaking as if I'm on higher ground from that person. I come humbly. I come, you know, representing the king who I serve as a servant king. I come in a Christ-like manner and do so. So I think it's about, in your heart, not kind of seeing that person as, oh, aren't they terrible, unlike me? It's saying, aren't they terrible, just like me? <laughs> yeah, and I'd love them to receive mercy like I've received mercy, but I do need to speak into what's going on here. So it's, walk, it's walking that tension. Does that help? Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, you know where it says, um, about hand in mind to Satan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really good question. Was this person a Christian? What are we saying here? I think that it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily mean they weren't a Christian, or they may not have been. Paul's clear they're calling themselves a believer. I think Paul himself is saying, Do you know what? It's so hard. What's the deal? We don't know. Okay. Um, I, Ephesians four talks. It says in Ephesians four, doesn't it? You know, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. So, true believers through not not dealing with sin in their heart can give Satan a place. Okay, so we know that true believers can do that. So this person may well be a believer, may not be a believer. It seems like what Paul is saying is that through the, the act of the church doing this, that there, there may well be something very terrible that happens to the person, um, but as a, which will either bring them to repentance and salvation, or actually it just 
takes them out of the game in the sense that they die. Okay? But they were a believer, so they saved. So, for example, um, someone fairly recently that I know, I would say a believer, I'd say, I, I would say, you know, lots of fruit and stuff like this, but then really went awry for a couple of years. I didn't know they'd gone awry and really some serious sin. And then was phoned up recently and told that they were in critical condition, had a, had a very terrible accident. Uh, I, I went to pray for them and just felt God say instantly, it's judgment. And I was like, oh, I didn't know anything that had been going on. And I was like, okay, so you didn't quite know how to pray after that, to be honest. So I was just like, you know, and um, within a couple of days, yeah, they'd, they'd, they'd gone. Um, but, you know, you get, you get beneath the story and there have been faithful, faithful brothers in the Lord around that person, pleading with them, urging with them, away from terrible, destructive, harmful sin. And it had just gone completely un, uh, you know, unheeded and yet still a profession of, I'm a believer, and I think that could be an instance. Although the church didn't, you know, but I think that can be an illustration of something like that that could happen. Yeah. Dave? Uh, so, uh, given this, like, a church where there are both outsiders and insiders within the church setting, yes. I guess the question is kind of, um, where's the point where there's a cut-off? I guess um, some churches have membership, people actually yes. put themselves under authority, yes. and then I would say, well, I give you permission to put me out. Yes. Um, I guess, would it be baptism here? Would it be confession? Yeah, it's a very, very good question in terms of a church where it's got outsiders and insiders around it. Where do you draw the line? Membership, blah, 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 blah. Um, I am becoming increasingly convinced that we do need to establish a membership. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the plan, and I think that would be how we did it. In terms of working out what it looks like to put someone out, it's very interesting. Very interesting, because I think, on the one hand, this is a public meeting, anyone can come. Anyone can come to this meeting who wants to, okay? It's a public meeting, you know, and that's, that's it, that's that. So you could put someone out and they can still come every week. Okay? So what is it then? Well, I think it is this, it is that the benefits of Christian fellowship, the benefits of just being around part of the community of God's people need to be withheld from that person. That doesn't mean that you blank the person. It means that you explain to them graciously. As a, ch- as a church, you all have to be on the same page. So it can't just be something that's kind of... Impose from above, this is Paul calls the church to act here. Okay? So the church will agree, this is going on, Everyone, okay, it's been agreed, it's been confirmed, this is really going on, this is really happening, there's absolutely no repentance, they're just boasting about it, it's really starting to affect some of the weaker brothers and sisters, we've got to do something here, and what we're going to do is we're going to withhold fellowship from this person, all the benefits of being part of the community of God's people and all of that, we're going to say, I'm sorry, we don't extend that to you anymore. You don't blank them, but you just explain it graciously to them and humbly to them. And also, I would say, you always want to have a key person who acts as a bridge to get that person back in. It's an open door, a bridge, someone who's an open door, you know, that can be communicating with that person. You're constantly trying to win them, okay? But by the same token, you know, there's there's clear lines drawn in terms of what that means. I think it's quite tricky for a church to work out how to do that that would invite... Um, those who are unbelievers around to a lot of its settings anyway. Although I think the clear thing here is this isn't someone who's an unbeliever, this is someone who's calling himself a believer. That's the thing, you see. You can have unbelievers, you, know, you may be here as a guest tonight and you may be in all kinds of kind of lifestyle stuff that you know, Jesus wouldn't be happy with, but you, well, it's, it's not so much about you tweaking your lifestyle, you need to get to know Jesus. Yeah? Because he brings that internal motivation to change. He comes and is inside of you and he makes you born again. That's what you need if that's you. Okay? But to have someone who says, no, I've experienced that and I'm a believer and I'm doing this, we, that's a very different thing. Yeah? I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Tom. Yeah, 
Yeah, historically, like one of the ways churches have tried to apply this is through communion and denying people the Lord's Supper. Mm. I guess the way we do it is a little bit different to the historical way, but that's not the first thing overseen it to say. Yeah. Is that an application for us? If so, yeah. It's a really good point. Historically, it's, it was people being allowed to the Lord's table, if you like, you know. Um, so, so those who are administering the Lord's Supper would say, sorry, I'm not going to give you this. And so would that be a, a, help, a helpful thing? I think it probably would, to be honest with you. Interestingly, just reading the other day about administering the Lord's Supper, I just thought to myself, actually, we, we don't have anyone administering it. Um, so I think that could be a helpful way of communicating to that person that, you know, things are really not well with them and the Lord. The whole time you're trying to help them understand things aren't right with them and the Lord. That's what you're trying to communicate, okay? Because we're the body of Christ. So you communicate all things are well, you're, you're, you're deceiving that person into thinking all things are well, and they're not. So you kind of communicate, say, oh, wake up, what am I doing? Yeah, I, need to, I want to get right with God. Great, get right with God, and you'll be right with the church. You see? So that's what you're trying to do. So that could be a helpful application. You need to give that one some thought. Thank you. Yeah. yeah if you know um, someone from another church that's been asked to leave, yes. you're a good friend of that person in another church yes. you have to not see them as well oh, well here's the thing you see these days for example if, the, if us as a church did this what's most likely to happen is this Joe Bloggs who's been removed just goes down the road and joins that one yeah so this is why it's helpful for pastors to just be local pastors to be in communication with each other just to be you know, on the lookout for wolves in sheep's clothing or whatever else it's important to be in communication about these things um, on the, uh, in regards to whether I think it's an interesting one friendship and fellowship are they the same thing well they're actually no they're not the same thing because obviously fellowship is something for believers but friendship is just had non, it's just something part of God's general uh, grace to the world it's a, it's, a, it's a grace gift from God so I think if you are a friend with someone that is in that, in that position then I would say the friendship can remain but you need to communicate in your friendship with them that you know there's an element where as a brother in Christ you're saying hold on you're saying you're a believer but you're acting like this there needs to, I say if there's no tension created in the friendship through what's going on, then I'd be asking, what kind of friendship is this? Yeah, it's kind of what's going on here? Um, because the person is obviously into some seriously bad stuff and still naming Jesus as Lord. I mean, as, a, as part of the body of Christ universal, you should feel a jealousy for Christ's reputation in that that causes you to say, hey, what's going on here? So in many ways, whenever the person meets a believer that is aware of the situation, he can't escape from the fact he is treading on Christ through what he's doing. He's treading him underfoot. And he needs to feel that. Why? So he can repent and receive mercy. Does that help? Yep. Yeah. Um, would there be like different types of sins which it would be more likely that the person would be removed? Because obviously there's some sins which culturally maybe lots of us are kind of guilty of and might even boast in you know, like greed or whatever. Yeah. Would you then be as likely to remove the person? It's, I, mean, I think it's a very interesting question in terms of what kinds of sins because I think we do categorise, don't we? I think the evangelical church historically categorises sexual sin. It's like, boom, you know? Uh, and then everyone's eating 20 slices of pizza and it's not a problem. Do you know what I mean? And we, it's, it's, that's true. That's what it says, yeah? Or the drunk thing. The word, the Greek there for drunk, it is tipsy. Don't even eat with such a one. So we've, it's not, I, th- I think the way to apply it is not to say what's the deal culture, it's to say is our, what parts of our culture are keeping us blinded to the seriousness of what the Bible describes as sin, because we need to shed that and respond biblically. Okay? So if there's anything on those lists that, that is you, um, and there's other lists elsewhere, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, 
reviling. I looked that up in the Greek yesterday. I've forgotten what, it's, what it means, actually. It's a funny old word, isn't it? Anyone here that's cleverer than me on this stuff? Okay. Um, drunkard or a swindler. Someone who's just, someone's cheating, ta- cheating on their taxes, you know, or just doing people out of money, being a bit underhanded, that sort of thing. Don't even eat with such a one. Why? Because this is serious stuff. So I think we need to make sure that our categories are biblical. Um, whilst at the same time preserving against a witch hunt culture in the church, where obviously we're all, you know, you know, you, 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 we're all, we're all on a journey. Where it's, it's about, it's a, here's what it's about. Whatever the sin is, it's about continuing in it unrepentantly, boastfully, and fragrantly. That's the issue. Rather than saying, do you know what, I'm really struggling with this. I'm looking to building confession into my life, accountability. I'm looking to draw near to God and get help in it. Um, maybe my journey in it is slower than that person, but by God's grace, we're getting there, yeah? That's the Christian life. That's bad news. Is that, is that helpful, yeah? Is that clear? Okay. All right. I hope that's helped. Um, and let me just end by saying this. Jesus loves you concretely, sacrificially gave his life up for you. If you've never come to know him, okay, he offers you life to the full. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you adoption as a child of God. He offers you reconciliation. He offers you persecution and hardship as you follow him. Okay? That's his promises for you. And I would, I would, I would urge you to follow him. I would urge you to give your life to him. I would urge you to receive from that shepherd life to the full. I really would. Okay? He is awesome. There is nothing like following him. There is nothing like knowing him. There's nothing like being delivered from the mediocrity and the smallness of simply serving something created. Whether yourself, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your career, your car, or whatever. Money. Okay, these things are created and only offer finite pleasure, fleeting pleasure. He offers pleasures forevermore. So I want to urge you to give your life to him. If you're a believer and you are just trapped in sin... You're trapped in fear, guilt, shame. Let me plead and urge with you, please. I genuinely beg you to let someone know, to bring it out into the light, to bring it out into the open. Listen, you will not be judged. Judging is about something else. You will be helped. You will be loved. You will be supported. Okay? We will get alongside you. If there are consequences to your sin, we'll walk with you through that. Maybe you need to confess. And we'll, okay, It's not necessarily going to be an easy process, but a process filled with grace, filled with hope, and it will get you somewhere good. So let me plead with you to do that, please, for the glory of God, for your own joy, for your own relief, and so that we can more and more look like what God's called us to be. Amen? Amen. Amen.